The Guardian. You're listening to The Guardian's short story podcast, featuring great authors reading and discussing their favourite short story. In this edition, we feature Margaret Drabble, who has chosen to read Catherine Mansfield's The Doll's House. When dear old Mrs Hay went back to town after staying with the Burnells, she sent the children a doll's house. It was so big that the carter and Pat carried it into the courtyard, and there it stayed, propped up on two wooden boxes beside the feed-room door. No harm could come to it, it was summer, and perhaps the smell of paint would have gone off by the time it had to be taken in, for really the smell of paint coming from that doll's house... Sweet of old Mrs Hay, of course, most sweet and generous, but the smell of paint was quite enough to make anyone seriously ill, in Aunt Beryl's opinion, even before the sacking was taken off. And when it was, there stood the doll's house, a dark, oily spinach green, picked out with bright yellow. Its two solid little chimneys glued onto the roof were painted red and white, and the door, gleaming with yellow varnish, was like a little slab of toffee. Four windows, real windows, were divided into panes by a broad streak of green. There was actually a tiny porch, too, painted yellow, with big lumps of congealed paint hanging along the edge. But perfect, perfect little house... Who could possibly mind the smell? It was part of the joy, part of the newness. Open it quickly, someone. The hook at the side was stuck fast. Pat prized it open with his penknife, and the whole house front swung back. And there you are, gazing at one and the same moment into the drawing room and dining room, the kitchen and two bedrooms. That is the way for a house to open. Why don't all houses open like that? How much more exciting than peering through the slit of a door into a mean little hall with a hat stand and two umbrellas? That is, isn't it, what you long to know about a house when you put your hand on the knocker? Perhaps it is the way God opens houses at the dead of night when he is taking a quiet turn with an angel. Oh! The Burnell children sounded as though they were in despair. It was too marvellous. It was too much for them. They had never seen anything like it in their lives. All the rooms were papered. There were pictures on the walls, painted on the paper, with gold frames complete. Red carpet covered all the floors except the kitchen. Red plush chairs in the drawing room, green in the dining room. Tables, beds and real bedclothes. A cradle, a stove a dresser with tiny plates and one big jug. But what Kezia liked more than anything, what she liked frightfully, was the lamp. It stood in the middle of the dining room table, an exquisite little amber lamp with a white globe. It was even filled, all ready for lighting, though of course you couldn't light it. But there was something inside that looked like oil and moved when you shook it. The father and mother dolls, who sprawled very stiff as though they had fainted in the drawing-room and their two little children asleep upstairs, were really too big for the doll's house. They didn't look as though they belonged. But the lamp was perfect. It seemed to smile at Kezia to say, I live here. The lamp was real.
The Burnell children could hardly walk to school fast enough the next morning. They burned to tell everybody, to describe, to, well, to boast about their doll's house before the school bell rang. I'm to tell, said Isabel, because I'm the eldest, and you two can join in after, but I'm to tell first. There was nothing to answer. Isabel was bossy, but she was always right, and Lottie and Kezia knew too well the powers that went with being eldest. They brushed through the thick buttercups at the road edge and said nothing. And I'm to choose who's to come and see it first. Mother said I might. For it had been arranged that while the doll's house stood in the courtyard, they might ask the girls at school, two at a time, to come and look. Not to stay to tea, of course, or to come traipsing through the house, but just to stand quietly in the courtyard while Isabel pointed out the beauties and Lottie and Kezia looked pleased. But hurry as they might, by the time they had reached the tarred palings of the boys' playground, the bell had begun to jangle. They only just had time to whip off their hats and fall into line before the roll was called. Never mind. Isabel tried to make up for it by looking very important and mysterious and by whispering behind her hand to the girls near her, Got something to tell you at playtime. Playtime came and Isabel was surrounded. The girls of her class nearly fought to put their arms round her, to walk away with her, to beam flatteringly, to be her special friend. She held quite a court under the huge pine trees at the side of the playground. Nudging, giggling together, the little girls pressed up close. And the only two who stayed outside the ring were the two who were always outside, the little Kelvies. They knew better than to come anywhere near the Burnells. For the fact was, the school the Burnell children went to was not at all the kind of place their parents would have chosen if there had been any choice, but there was none. It was the only school for miles, and the consequence was all the children of the neighbourhood, the judge's little girls, the doctor's daughters, the storekeeper's children, the milkman's, were forced to mix together, not to speak of there being an equal number of rude, rough little boys as well. But the line had to be drawn somewhere. It was drawn at the Kelvies. Many of the children, including the Burnells, were not allowed even to speak to them. They walked past the Kelvies with their heads in the air, and as they set the fashion in all matters of behaviour, the Kelvies were shunned by everybody. Even the teacher had a special voice for them and a special smile for the other children when Lil Kelvy came up to her desk with a bunch of dreadfully common-looking flowers. They were the daughters of a spry, hard-working little washerwoman who went about from house to house by the day. This was awful enough, but where was Mr Kelvy? Nobody knew for certain, but everybody said he was in prison. So they were the daughters of a washerwoman and a jailbird. Very nice company for other people's children. And they looked it. Why Mrs Kelvin made them so conspicuous was hard to understand. The truth was they were dressed in bits given to her by the people for whom she worked. Lil, for instance, who was a stout, plain child with big freckles, came to school in a dress made from a green art serge tablecloth of the Burnells with red plush sleeves from the Logan's curtains. Her hat 
perched on top of her high forehead, was a grown-up woman's hat, once the property of Miss Lecky, the postmistress. It was turned up at the back and trimmed with a large scarlet quill. What a little guy she looked, it was impossible not to laugh. And her little sister, R. Else, wore a long white dress rather like a nightgown and a pair of little boy's boots. But whatever R. Else wore, she would have looked strange. She was a tiny wishbone of a child with cropped hair and enormous solemn eyes, a little white owl. Nobody had ever seen her smile. She scarcely ever spoke. She went through life holding on to Lil, with a piece of Lil's skirt screwed up in her hand. Where Lil went, our else followed. In the playground, on the road going to and from school, there was Lil marching in front and our else holding on behind. Only when she wanted anything, or when she was out of breath, our else gave Lil a tug, a twitch, and Lil stopped and turned round. The Kelvies never failed to understand each other. Now they hovered at the edge. You couldn't stop them listening. When the little girls turned round and sneered, Lil, as usual, gave her silly, shamefaced smile. But our else only looked. And Isabel's voice, so very proud, went on telling. The carpet made a great sensation, but so did the beds with real bedclothes and the stove with an oven door. When she finished, Kezia broke in. You've forgotten the lamp, Isabel. Oh, yes, said Isabel, and there's a teeny little lamp all made of yellow glass with a white globe that stands on the dining room table. You couldn't tell it from a real one. The lamp's best of all, cried Kezia. She thought Isabel wasn't making half enough of the little lamp. But nobody paid any attention. Isabel was choosing the two who were to come back with them that afternoon and see it. She chose Emmy Cole and Lena Logan. But when the others knew they were all to have a chance, they couldn't be nice enough to Isabel. One by one, they put their arms round Isabel's waist and walked her off. They had something to whisper to her, a secret. Isabel's my friend. Only the little Kelvies moved away, forgotten. There was nothing more for them to hear. Days passed, and as more children saw the doll's house, the fame of it spread. It became the one subject, the rage. The only question was, have you seen the Burnell's doll's house? Oh, ain't it lovely? Haven't you seen it? Oh, I say. Even the dinner hour was given up to talking about it. The little girls sat under the pines eating their thick mutton sandwiches and big slabs of johnny cake spread with butter, while always, as near as they could get, sat the Kelvies, our else holding on to Lil, listening too, while they chewed their jam sandwiches out of a newspaper soaked with large red blobs. Mother, said Kezia, can't I ask the Kelvies just once? Certainly not, Kezia. But why not? Run away, Kezia. You know quite well why not. At last, everybody had seen it except them. On that day, the subject rather flagged. It was the dinner hour. The children stood together under the pine trees, and suddenly 
As they looked at the Kelvies eating out of their paper, always by themselves, always listening, they wanted to be horrid to them. Emmy Cole started the whisper. Lil Kelvie's going to be a servant when she grows up. Oh, how awful, said Isabel Burnell, and she made eyes at Emmy. Emmy swallowed in a very meaning way and looked to Isabel as she'd seen her mother do on those occasions. It's true, it's true, it's true, she said. Then Lena Logan's little eyes snapped. Shall I ask her, she whispered. Bet you don't, said Jessie May. I'm not frightened, said Lena. Suddenly she gave a little squeal and danced in front of the other girls. Watch, watch me, watch me now, said Lena. And sliding, gliding, dragging one foot, giggling behind her hand, Lena went over to the Kelvies. Lil looked up from her dinner. She wrapped the rest quickly away. R.L. stopped chewing. What was coming now? Is it true you're going to be a servant when you grow up, little Kelvy? shrilled Lena. Dead silence. But instead of answering, Lil only gave her silly, shame-faced smile. She didn't seem to mind the question at all. What a sell for Lena! The girls began to titter. Lena couldn't stand that. She put her hands on her hips. She shot forward. Yeah, your father's in prison, she hissed spitefully. This was such a marvellous thing to have said that the little girls rushed away in a body, deeply, deeply excited, wild with joy. Someone found a long rope and they began skipping, and never did they skip so high, run in and out so fast, or do such daring things as on that morning. In the afternoon, Pat called for the Burnell children with the buggy, and they drove home. There were visitors. Isabel and Lottie, who liked visitors, went upstairs to change their pinafores. But Kezia thieved out at the back. Nobody was about. She began to swing on the big white gates of the courtyard. Presently, looking along the road, she saw two little dots. They grew bigger. They were coming towards her. Now she could see that one was in front and one close behind. Now she could see that they were the Kelvies. Kezia stopped swinging. She slipped off the gate as if she was going to run away. Then she hesitated. The Kelvies came nearer, and beside them walked their shadows, very long, stretching right across the road with their heads in the buttercups. Kezia clambered back on the gate. She had made up her mind. She swung out. Hello, she said to the passing Kelvies. They were so astounded that they stopped. Lil gave her silly smile. R.L. stared. You can come and see our doll's house if you want to, said Kezia, and she dragged one toe on the ground. But at that, Lil turned red and shook her head quickly. Why not, asked Kezia. Lil gasped. Then she said, Your ma told our ma you wasn't to speak to us. Oh, well, said Kezia. She didn't know what to reply. It doesn't matter. You can come and see our doll's house all the same. Come on, nobody's looking. But Lil shook her head still harder. Don't you want to, asked Kezia. Suddenly there was a twitch, a tug at Lil's skirt. She turned round. Our else was looking at her with big, imploring eyes. She was frowning. She wanted to go. For a moment, Lil looked at R.L.'s very doubtfully. But then R.L.'s twitched her skirt again. She started forward. 
Kezia led the way. Like two little stray cats, they followed across the courtyard to where the doll's house stood. There it is, said Kezia. There was a pause. Lil breathed loudly, almost snorted. Our else was still as stone. I'll open it for you, said Kezia kindly. She undid the hook and they looked inside. There's the drawing room and the dining room and that's the... Kezia! Oh, what a start they gave. Kezia! It was Aunt Beryl's voice. They turned round at the back door, stood Aunt Beryl, staring as if she couldn't believe what she saw. How dare you ask the little Kelbys into the courtyard, said her cold, furious voice. You know as well as I do you're not allowed to talk to them. Run away, children, run away at once. and Don't come back again, said Aunt Beryl. And she stepped into the yard and shooed them out as if they were chickens. Off you go immediately, she called, cold and proud. They did not need telling twice. Burning with shame, shrinking together, Lil huddling along like her mother, R. else dazed, somehow they crossed the big courtyard and squeezed through the white gate. Wicked, disobedient little girl, said Aunt Beryl bitterly to Kezia as she slammed the doll's house too. The afternoon had been awful. A letter had come from Willie Brent, a terrifying, threatening letter, saying if she did not meet him that evening in Pullman's bush, he'd come to the front door and ask the reason why. But now that she had frightened those little rats of Kelvies and given Kezia a good scolding, her heart felt lighter. That ghastly pressure was gone. She went back to the house humming. When the Kelvies were well out of sight of Burnell's, they sat down to rest on a big red drainpipe by the side of the road. Lil's cheeks were still burning. She took off the hat with a quill and held it on her knee. Dreamily, they looked over the hay paddocks, past the creek to the group of wattles where Logan's cows stood waiting to be milked. What were their thoughts? Presently, R.L. snudged up close to her sister, but now she had forgotten the cross lady. She put out a finger and stroked her sister's quill. She smiled, her rare smile. I seen the little lamp, she said softly. Then both were silent once more. Margaret Drabble reading Catherine Mansfield's The Doll's House. Margaret spoke to Lisa Allardyce of Guardian Review about her choice. It's so memorable and so painful, and I think it's the first adult short story I ever read, and something that you read at a young age that hits you as strongly as this one does, does stay with you forever. I think I read it in a Christmas anthology of one of those Golden Wonder books or whatever, because I can actually see in my memory... um, an illustration of the children and the doll's house, a sort of um, woodblock illustration. And I lost that anthology long ago. It was an album. I think we used to call them a Christmas album. And I think that's where I came across it. I was probably about 10 or 11. And the extraordinary thing about it is that she moves between the sisters' consciousness. And and you're very much in this world that, sadly, I recognise too well, and I'm sure all girls do of the absolute viciousness of of groups of girls together and then there's a sudden slip isn't there into an awareness of an adult world 
outside, but presumably when you first read it, you you weren't aware of that? Not at all. I was only aware of the children's, um, the sibling rivalry, the, the school rivalry. The, the class consciousness of the school children was completely fascinating to me because the first school I went to was a village school where everybody was completely equal. We were only sort of four years old. We all went on the bus and were picked up and played in the playground. and That was sort of paradise. And when I went to a, my next school at the age of six, all sorts of class barriers had crept in and people were showing off and scoring off one another and I I think that this story really reveals that area of anxiety that all children have but it's very poignantly done here. Um, the the Burnell girls they they quite openly they candidly say that they've gone to the sort of the school that their parents really would rather not have sent them to. They have to mix with the wrong kind of children. That's, but I, I think all parents talk about schools like that. I mean, they were talking about schools like that in North London in the 1960s. I mean, the nasty people you might have to meet at school. This is something I've always found very upsetting because children can't be na- nasty in the sense in the social class sense, they can be unpleasant to each other. But the idea that you be, could be contaminated by mixing with children from the wrong social class was endemic in, in my childhood. And I really tried to get it out of my children's background, but it never goes. It's always there. There's a, there's a point where one of the, um, the girls are sitting around and one of them nods meaningfully, as she has seen her mother do in, in such occasions when a snobby comment is being made and the idea of of innocent children being contaminated by this snobbery is is very strong in this isn't it they're learning all the bad habits i i think that this scene lay behind a scene that i wrote in my novel the millstone where one mother won't let her children play with the child next door because she has an accent and isn't the kind of child. And this child swings on the gate yelling, I haven't got no one to play with, I haven't got no one to play with. And that line used to upset me every time I read it. And it still upsets me. And I remember this very clearly from a street I knew when my children were small um, and the fact that one child was excluded because she was a sort of... She had the wrong accent. Um, The doll's house itself... Even though it is a real thing, it is also a, a wonderful metaphor for what is goes on behind closed doors. And it opens with them saying, if only all houses, you could take the front off them and see inside. And um, the two elder sisters are fascinated with all the bits. And, and the, the youngest, who we're agreeing to call Kaiser, yeah. Kizia, um, she adores this very simple little lamp, doesn't she? Well, the lamp does sound completely magical. When I read the story, I thought to have a little lamp like that was completely wonderful. And the doll's house itself is described as an object of great desire. I mean, it is obviously a beautiful doll's house, and one longs to have had one like that or to have been able to see it. And the little lamp... and Well, the the last line or so uh, about um, the little lamp is just... Um, completely heartbreaking, really, that they're, they're happy with so little, these, dis- these children who are discriminated against. They're happy with so little. The house itself is little. There's a sort of smallness of desire. And then you realise they're going to grow up into adults and live in adult houses and be repressed and oppressed and turn on one another. It's, it's an extraordinarily um, neat and intense story. Margaret Drabble. And you can download all the short stories in this series at guardian.co.uk forward slash books. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.